From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in High Challenge Rating, Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Stephen McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Arthur Croy, I too make nice games. In this episode, we talk with Katrina Ostrander and John Keeney to discuss how dungeon masters think about game design. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Ha ha. <laughs> Timing. Whoosh. Ellen's been a, uh, on a kick of timing our intros just right to the theme song, but our guests didn't hear the theme song, so they're probably very confused <laughs> at what you're so impressed with yourself about. I mean, there's just so many reasons I can be impressed with myself. <laughs> yeah, welcome, you guys. I'm so glad you guys could come. Um, let's uh, let's talk about who you are and how we know each other and and what kind of what flavor of geek you are. So, Katrina, let's start with you. Um, we actually met through John, um, which is funny. Yes, uh, that's yeah. correct. <laughs> right. But you have uh, a long professional history doing writing for RPG systems, tabletop RPG systems. Um, mm-hmm. And you work full time in the tabletop g- games industry right now. Yeah. Board games, card games, tabletop RPGs, all that fun stuff. Cool. The whole thing. It's its like a dream for many people. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. Living the dream. Living the dream. So tell us a little bit about like um, what's the type of work that you do and how what's your journey been like? Just briefly, we can get into more details later, but just to kind of outline for listeners um, who you are before we jump into some questions. Sure. So I actually got my start um, in role playing games. I pretty much dove into dungeon mastering right away, and it was my interest in different systems. And um, at that time, there was Warhammer Fantasy Third Edition with the funky dice that a lot of people remember. Um, and based off of my experience with that and some of the moonlighting I did in my English department, I actually got a full-time job with Fantasy Flight Games as an associate RPG producer working on the Star Wars role-playing game line. And so in that role, I pretty much took all of my like monster crafting and like scenario design knowledge that I had been developing as a dungeon master, and now I got to apply it in kind of like an editorial role, helping um express that through game mechanics, express Star Wars through these different game mechanics, and specifically working with freelance writers to help them um, convey the world and create these books that game masters and players themselves can use to help bring those worlds to life. Um, so after working in the on role-playing games specifically, I actually started taking a detour into fiction editing. And so I worked on the Arkham Horror novellas from Fantasy Flight Games, I worked on the Legend of the Five Rings novellas from Fantasy Flight Games with a bunch of different amazing, talented authors. And in my current role as creative director of story and setting at Fantasy Flight, I actually oversee all of our internal IPs, whether those are being expressed through card games, through board games, or through the role-playing games, which are being developed by Edge Studio. So I still get to work on role-playing games, or at least read them on like a daily basis practically, which is definitely a dream come true. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in my spare time, um, I've been getting a lot more into fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. I've been playing it since it came out, but like now I'm really kind of like diving in. I've been really appreciating like all the new source books that have been coming out. Uh, so I'm just thrilled to be here. I love talking dungeon mastering. I write about being a dungeon master, a game master, I write about different systems at my blog and it used to be for geek and sundry. So this is going to be a great chat. I'm really looking forward to it. I feel like I've been I've been hyping this chat for a long time because whenever we mention D and D on the uh, on the podcast, just casually, like we'll talk about it, how the mechanics might relate to something else, and 
and or just the, like, the aesthetics the feelings that you're trying to capture as you're building a story together um it comes up frequently but this is the first time we've really i think dove into it yeah yeah it's always adjacent to our discussions and we never really even sink our teeth in and i know speaking for myself and probably for you steven we're not as familiar as, as you are yes. with, with uh tabletop rpgs and so a lot of the, i'm excited about this because i feel like there's a lot for me to just listen to and learn <laughs> um well also one of the things that comes up frequently when we mentioned dungeons and dragons on this show is uh my dungeon master john so john you and i we met um because we were working at the same place but we really started like developing our friendship when we started playing alternity together um we had a couple friends uh who had developed a mass effect flavor of alternity which is a science fiction based rpg system and we were playing that together and eventually we weren't playing that anymore but instead we were playing dungeons and dragons together so um that goes that goes way back i think we've been playing together for like is it six years five years i think it was six years wow six years a weekly session yeah with a couple gaps we've been on hiatus for a while because our bard had twins in real life and <laughs> other reasons as well for scheduling and but yeah i think that's about right yeah. i've been kind of there um uh, i don't want to say uh imprisoned uh, <laughs> pressed into service designated uh, it's a very loyal group very good group i'm very fortunate yeah, if they're and, going uh, six years long that's like almost a record practically for game <laughs> sessions it seems yeah. like yeah it's nuts it's nuts <laughs> i mean the last dnd group i was part of i would say has been going for six years only because we last played six years ago and no <laughs> one is ready to admit it's over <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no, uh, it's, it's, it's been, a, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. So yeah, I guess I would say I'm, um, it, it's going to be a great contrast because Kat is a, also a dear friend of mine and a consummate professional as we've all just established and I'm a committed amateur. So I think a lot of your listeners are probably somewhere between those two poles, I think. Um, so, um, uh, that's how I'm going to, that's how I'm going to frame my relevance into this conversation <laughs> uh is that you know we can we can contrast well one but, of the uh, honestly i'm just i'm just thrilled to be here uh, as well so thank you for inviting me um well our pleasure to have you and one of the other things i wanted to just mention too because i think it's gonna it's gonna come in a little bit is that um we have been playing in most of the time that we've been playing D D together um we've been playing it in a setting that you created uh yeah kind of um, and the kind of there, and we can touch on it very briefly because there's nothing more miserable than listening to somebody talk about their self-indulgent homebrew thing uh, <laughs> that no one has any attachment to. But from a high level, the purposes for our discussion, maybe it might be relevant. Um, it's a collaborative homebrew setting <laughs> that my goal on the outset was I wanted minimal front end investment of my time because I was very busy and still am. I wanted to avoid meta knowledge, published materials and established settings. In the past, I've been burned multiple times by people who just go to Wikidot or before that existed, had a book. And it and a big part of what drives um, what I enjoy as a dungeon master or game master and what most of my players enjoy are the feelings of genuine discovery, finding new things, mysteries learning about the world they're in and how their player their characters can influence it as opposed to and a lot of groups don't have this problem i'm sure but as opposed to like no one wants to come in and say 
Well, actually, Dritz de Worden and Brunor Battlehammer solved this problem for Icewind Dale uh, 27 years ago. Dale Reckoning. You know, uh, or and you, or you don't want your players to feel like they're just like other guys. Like, oh, here's the other guy as well. Aragorn was off doing important things. Mm-hmm. So I solved that problem by just collaboratively getting ownership with my players and we essentially build that canonicity. I only try to stay like, you know, so many feet ahead of them. Yeah. Well, let's definitely touch on that again. Um, once we get into some of the meat of it. So what we've done today, and I think that the way that we'll kind of facilitate this discussion is we're going to kind of run like a panel. We've got a bunch of questions that we've prepared and sent to you ahead of time. Um, some of which are more analytical and about the practice of game design for RPGs and for scenario design as well. And then some of them are like storytelling questions. Remember when things totally went well or maybe when things totally didn't. Um, so we'll ask you those questions and uh, and we'll give you both uh, ample time to respond and give us your thoughts on that and also dialogue with each other. So um, that's how we expect to, to have this session run. Um, and we can cut that whole spiel if we want to. <laughs> okay. No, I like it when you say we, but really you are the one who planned and executed <laughs> yeah. the, the outline for this episode mm-hmm. and listeners need to know <laughs> so we don't get any credit for that. Yeah, it's very well detailed. <laughs> you will also say words that will be on the recording, however. Well, we'll see about that. Okay. Um, all right. So this is a, you know, we do lots of different conversations about game design on Nice Games Club yep. um, and lots of different like avenues into developing games. You know, I think we, we've, done a lot more video game design but we've also done a little bit more tabletop game design over the last year mm-hmm. the reason um i wanted to talk about tabletop rpgs and designing both the systems and as well as the sessions um is because mainly i wanted to have you guys on the show and talk to you um <laughs> but also to me rpg systems are i don't know they're just even trickier because there's this there's this overarching system you have to design and then there's the session by session design that goes into it right, right. Be- because it's not just, um, you're not just turning loose a set of rules and asking people to abide by them. You are also asking them to contribute to the content of the game live and collaboratively. Uh, and that, to me, is a really interesting design challenge. Um, so we've got the RPG system as designed before the session. And then there's the dynamic way that it plays out during the session and whatever design you have and planning you have prior to that. And so I want to talk to you guys about how you know, how you navigate those different aspects and what, you know, what processes you've developed and what advice you have. Um, just kind of explore your thoughts and experiences from both of those angles going forward. Um, so with that prelude, first question for you. Are you guys familiar with the MDA framework at all? It's mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics. Nope. I'm fam- cool. I'm familiar <laughs> all right. with the Wikipedia article I read. Yes. Yes, the same. I did some homework for this podcast. I definitely looked this up because uh, this is not the the theory or framework that I'm used to in role playing games. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I don't. You know, it's not. We're not going to do a master class on MDA framework. It's mostly just something I wanted to bring up because I find it a useful framework to to talk about using. You know, during discussions of um, this, mm-hmm. this kind of casual nature. So. Really quickly, a mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics is just a way of breaking down a game system into three different parts. You've got the mechanics, which are the rules. You've got the dynamics, which are like the evolving state of the game during play. And then the aesthetics are like mm-hmm. the elements that are relating to the emotional experience of the player. Did I miss anything? No, that's it. I think you got all three. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> okay. And it's called MDA because it's the first letter of each of those words. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Um, for listeners, we'll link to the white paper in the show notes. We've linked to it before, um, but it's worth reading if you haven't. And if you have, it's worth rereading. It's so good. Um, anyway, so I wanted to just think about uh, what elements of RPG systems that you're familiar with would you categorize into those three parts of the framework? Um, just thinking about like the rules, the mechanics, the dynamics, meaning the evolving pieces, and then the aesthetics being the emotional experience of a player as they're going through the game. Yeah, I um thinking about like breaking down RPGs in this way, um, starting with the mechanics, the thing that I think about um, first when I think about like RPG mechanics is people will typically categorize them as like crunchy or light rules. And so crunchy will be like, there's a lot to, to dig into. There's a lot of like levers and mechanisms, like very complex systems that are trying to emulate something um, versus light where it's kind of like, guidelines or something to like jumpstart the story if the conversation between like the players and gms is stalling out um and so yeah there's there's always the mechanics that's what you're what's in your big book uh that you've bought the stuff that you've spent money on because assumedly someone else has play tested it for you um so that's that's kind of what i think of first when i think of the mechanics of course is like just the the apparatus of the system as well as like what it is trying to gamify because in different RPGs that are in different genres, the systems are trying to simulate different like parts of reality. So you've like investigative based systems, combat systems, which I would argue is what D and D is fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And then you have more um, storytelling systems where the mechanics are basically like it helping you fill in your Mad Libs for what your <laughs> story is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, when you said that, um, and John, we'll pivot to you for a second to, add, to ask the same question, but when you're talking about like simulating different aspects of reality, the mechanic that really popped into my head when you mentioned that was the like the Jenga Tower um, mechanic, <laughs> and I think it's the RPG named Dread. Um, it's been a while since mm -hmm. I played it, yeah. And just like the, the tension that it captures, even though like it's just rectangles stacked on other rectangles. And if you play Jenga outside of that, you get a tension, but it's totally different than the tension you get within the story. Um, that's just, I don't know, to me, that was like that mechanic really just resonated with what you said about trying to capture a different aspect of reality. Mm -hmm. So John, what is, uh, when you're thinking about categorizing, um, different aspects of a system into those three categories, what, what comes to mind? Yeah. Um, everything that Kat said. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, cause it's the, cause that was my first thought, Oh, I'll just talk about crunchiness, but, uh, getting away from crunchy, I like to think of them and I, and I haven't had the broad breadth of experience with multiple different systems. But when I think of these things, I think of, uh, what, whenever I look at a system and what is gamified, um, to Kat's point, I'm thinking kind of like the negative space, what isn't. So the game mechanics are there and from a designer from a top down this is the kind of experience it isn't saying oh how you know this spell is going to happen or whatever or you know investigation mm -hmm. it's what is interesting to take away from the players as far as control goes absolutely what are we taking away from the player so like in D D, since it is so combat driven it's trying to create a player fantasy of um 
of understanding of very elaborate, extremely elaborate set pieces, but you have to, you give all these tools, but you have to take away the resolution of these gambits and these risks in order to create tension, in order to create um, uncertainty. Otherwise, it really is kind of a, a game on playground game where it's like, well, no, but I've got a force field, you know, when you're like seven and people are, you know, playing Jedi's or whatever the kids do now these days. Um, so that's why I always like to think about it. So when I look at a really light system, um, the challenge I've always had is like, okay, but there's a, there's this thin line where what is this book, but just a bunch of writing prompts then, you know, sometimes it can be very difficult. Um, so I don't know. Have you played thousand year old vampire? Because <laughs> that is a book of writing prompts. That yeah, is okay. yeah, yeah, but yeah. So Cat knows what I'm talking about. Where you like yeah. go through, and it's like, okay, I don't need this thing, but maybe other folks would, and that's the value of it. Because it's like, oh, it's a bunch of writing prompts that mm-hmm. are collated by style or something. Mm-hmm. But um, because they're so thin. Whereas D and D, the part of D and D that is just says, ah, screw it, is basically all the social encounters, mm-hmm. all of the non-combat that. They're very comfortable with just saying, yo, dog, here's a couple writing prompts. We'll put them in the player's handbook. And the DM will give you like five paragraphs. Best of luck to you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know just, just role play it out. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> what does it and then mean? It, when in doubt, contrive a reason to go back to the safe space of throwing a die and seeing what happens. You know, yeah. like that. That's they always, they always shunt you back to it, but they're, yeah. you know. Um, I think it's super fascinating, um, like looking at the history, like the DNA of role playing games. And and John, you play Warhammer, you you know exactly mm-hmm. the the kind of wargaming. So Dungeons and Dragons was just some some medieval rules for like these armies that people would field back in the seventies. And then Dave Arneson, who's from here in the Twin Cities. Um, he was like, well, what if we like did like a, a personal scale where you just one person instead of like these whole armies, but like, because the game mechanics literally come from war and from combat all the time. And then like Dave Arneson didn't even like practically use rules. It was like much more loosey goosey when he was doing Blackmore in his house here in, you know, Minnesota. Um, and so I think that's kind of like the, the congruence of what, Gary Gygax was doing, which was like creating that uh, miniatures game system and translating it to the tabletop and then taking what Dave Arneson was doing, which was, well, what if we put players in a dungeon and they had to like survive all of these death traps and monsters? So, you know, even, even then in the like kind of original games, there was, you know, there'd be some role playing, but like they would, they would just kind of handle that. Like the players could figure it out or the DM would just adjudicate kind of how it ran. As a follow-up to that, do you find that game systems tend are still shackled by that legacy? Because um, a lot of times I hear about oh systems that are like oh this is a really interesting way to do the narrative component, or but do do players like player expectation and game master expectations always fall back on the the war gaming roots of these systems, or is it just people like that? That's continually what they like. I think it depends on the player and it depends on when they started role playing. And so I think you have a lot of folks that come to role playing games, um, that enjoy like the challenge and enjoy like, you know, the, to go into the aesthetics of it. Do I get the rush of winning or defeating like the enemy, the encounter? 
um, that we're going up against? Um, or are they kind of more interested in like, well, what would it be like if I was, you know, an adventurer and I was an elf and I lived for thousands of years, hundreds of years, um, and I wanted to start a traveling rock band? <laughs> and then you just, you know, and you play and you play Dungeons and Dragons because that's what all your friends are playing. And that's the easiest system to learn how to play. And it has the most resources available to you. But I'll bet that there is an indie role playing game about playing adventurers in a traveling rock band in a fantasy setting. So, like, that's the the gamut. That's the spectrum for you. If there isn't one, you should make it. <laughs> <laughs> And that's just the general you, not necessarily you specifically. Katrina, please make that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we've done, we've talked a little bit about these different aspects of um, of a RPG system, and I want to think about the you know take it take it from this high level and bring it down to like the specific session. Um, and so this is kind of going to go more into maybe process. When you guys are planning for a specific session, how do you think and prepare for each of those elements in that specific session, right? The, like, what mechanics are you going to use and why? And what are the, you know, what do you expect from the dynamics? How do you anticipate what players will do and, and prepare yourself for when they totally don't do that? Um, and then, like, how do you have, like, a goal for the aesthetic experience? What do you want your players to feel during a session? How do you bring that all together in your preparation? So for prep for a session, so doesn't really matter the system, but again, I've only done a couple and most of them have been D&D or D&D adjacent. So um, the structure of a D&D session, when you break it down, uh, how I handle it is when I'm writing, uh, I define my goal as the DM for the session. Where uh, So imagine I'm building the train station. Right. I'm going to use a lot of train metaphors, guys. So <laughs> buckle up. That's cool. That's cool. Um, I'm ready. All aboard. <laughs> so all aboard. Choo-choo. Um, so <laughs> I build the train station, which could be anything. So for, for example, I'll just say, ah, I want my players, I want the players, the party, to get to the spooky ruin where the next leg of this adventure, next session, will probably continue from. Um, Th and that's it. It'll be like a bullet. I will write one sentence. This is where we're going because everything else I write after that needs to somehow serve that goal without railroading anybody. Uh, <laughs> the second thing I'll do is I'll create a hook at the, or some other kind of device at the very beginning of the session. You know, think like an anime series or some kind of serial where at the beginning they do a little recap. Uh, and something to get the, the momentum immediately. Sometimes it's literally as simple as, okay, guys, last time you were all doing X, Y, and Z, and then you were thinking about doing this other thing. Um, if it's the first session, I, I mean, I, I, you don't, I've learned from years of DMing, you don't have to be very complicated. Having a mysterious stranger burst into an inn is perfectly fine. You can be as trite as you want to be. It's okay. Um, and then I will plan out generally two obstacles. So that could be things that are going to impede the players from getting to this objective that has been foreshadowed or hooked or whatever. And those obstacles can be a conversation encounter, if it's appropriate, puzzle, some kind of thing. It's a set piece. These set pieces, I will develop a little more 
maybe six bullets. If it's a combat encounter set piece, that's a whole separate conversation for D&D specifically. But try to make that interesting. Make sure every player has something to contribute. Because as a DM, you know what all your players' characters can do and things that they characters care about. So I was trying to make sure that I have one bespoke thing for each that they could contribute. If they add more because they're clever, sweet. Um, and then these obstacles, the reason why I put them kind of, uh, they can go in any order because my players don't have a script. They're writing the script as we go. They don't know that because they went left or they went to the port or this other city or went off into a, a swamp for God knows what reason I didn't foreshadow. I can just slide one of those obstacles in front of them and they're none the wiser and they'll feel like, Oh man, no matter where we go, something cool is going to happen. Um, and if they completely obviate them, since I only spent about a half hour framing them out before I improvised in the detail, I don't care. And I'm not emotionally invested as a DM and a creator. I'll throw that away. Doesn't matter. We'll keep moving. Um, and then the last thing I do trying to wrap this up quick guys, I'm sorry. Um, the last thing I'll do is I'll create a, what I call the cast list. This is for continuity. So if you might notice, I'm very improvisational. I'm kind of hinting at that. I'm very collaborative. I expect the players to bring a lot to the table um, and drive a lot of action. But what I don't expect everybody, including myself, to do is to just remember MacGuffins, concepts, um, characters, interesting NPCs. I'll, I'll write, I call them my little grab bag or like a shoebox full of notes and I'll just have a ah, dwarf with a scar or something. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, or this guy talks weird and they'll have two pieces and I'll hook them together and I'll flow them into the, uh, the setting, uh, the session. And if the players resonate and it is interesting and fun things happened with that NPC or that object, it's now go, it gets promoted after the session in the background to, Oh, this is a recurring guy. Now. <laughs> I mean, I've created uh, full on villains have been, been invented out of the shoebox that have been returned and their characters need an arc to be interesting, right? I had none of that planned ahead of time. This was um, a, his, a historian with a chip on her shoulder ended up being a major villain for one of the campaigns. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> um, and then, uh, and, and, and Ellen knows exactly who I'm talking about. I do. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Literally a throwaway character because some MacGuffin needed a name attached to it, like that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, and then I'll just run the session from there. That's my before my session. So I'll end up ideally with maybe two pages of notes for myself and everything else. We just fill in. Uh, Kat, I, Katrina, I saw you nodding your head a lot during uh, John's uh, description of his process. Is yeah. It, um, I think there's a, I mean, we share a lot of similarities in terms of like the preparation and like the thing that really stood out to me was like um, thinking about obstacles um, and like kind of building out from there. Um, my process, I think I go, I'm getting a little bit more loosey goosey in terms of like, I'm setting up some, like I'm trying to figure out, based off of the scenario that I'm writing or the adventure, the campaign that I'm preparing for, I'm thinking about what are the PCs trying to do? Like specifically what, what quest or what charge um, or what is like the prime motivation for the player characters? The one that I'm working on right now is they want to get rich. They want to become like, you know, a really big like mercenary company or something, 
something like that. And so now I'm thinking about, okay, so they're going to like, these are the rewards. This is the payoff that I can give them if, you know, they're pursuing the the motives that um, I'm expecting them to have. And a big part of this is like either being really upfront with the players as the GM to be like, hey, I think it would be fun if we did a campaign with this premise for what your motivation is. Um, but in other systems, there's actually mechanics for players to choose what their motivations are, what their objectives. Sometimes they're like kind of negative, like what are their obligations? And so you can use those and pretty much see like who has like something horrible in their backstory that you can bring forward. Um, and that'll kind of like provide the initial like seed for a scenario or a, a session in, in your adventure. Um, the other thing, and this is what I've been focusing much more on because I'm kind of running something, I'm working on something more sandboxy right now. So less scripted, it's less like writing a novel and it's more just like, this is the world and I'm going to populate it with people and places. And what I'm really trying to, um, you know, figure out is, well, what are the bad guys trying to do? Like, who are they? What do they want? So this is the motives, but from like the dark side, like the flip side. And then specifically, um, what I need to do is how do what the good guys want and the bad guys want, how does that come into conflict? Boom. Those are my sessions. And you can design dungeons that way um, by thinking about who made this dungeon? Why did they make this dungeon? What is it for? What is its function? And based off of that, you'll come up with the challenges for how the PCs will interact with it based off of the PCs want to find the person entombed in this dungeon or they want to recover the MacGuffin treasure sword out of the dragon's hoard. Um, and so when you find the things that come into conflict, those are the obstacles and the encounters that you're going to, um, you know, figure out. Is it, is it a social encounter obstacle rather? Is it a exploration obstacle where they literally have to find where they're going and then you get to use your, dun- your uh, wilderness rules? Um, out of the book, or is it you know your combat obstacles, and now you have to think about okay, well, what kind of tactics? Like even at the combat scale, you can think, well, what do these monsters want, and why? And you can have a much more interesting and flavorful scenario because most of the time they shouldn't be fighting to the death because a lot of living creatures have a self-preservation instinct. But it's so easy to be like, oh, well, everything fights to the death always, all the time. And so you actually end up with very samey combat. But that is a different tangent. I'm not going to go on that tangent today. But it's something <laughs> I've been thinking about a lot recently. You know, this is, this is really fascinating to hear like the, that, that, that process that goes into designing this. Because I'm hearing a lot of similarities between this and like video games. But this, mm-hmm. like the core difference is that the players determine how the story goes. And like from, from a Video game developers' perspective, I'm freaking out because <laughs> 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 we just literally cannot do that. And we're we're like I I I feel like I'm so focused on directing the player in a in a particular ma- yeah. in a particular way that like giving players that kind of freedom because we like in video games we're just limited. We can't. They can imagine some things in their head, but they the game we are programming all the things in the game, so we literally have to put anything that they're deciding to do. Yeah. Um, but like in an RPG, you can do exactly. whatever you want. So like it's just so difficult for me to think about it yeah. in that way. And more than that, in a in an RPG, if a game master just you know really heavily directs a campaign, yeah, that does not live. I mean, I guess it depends on the, the GM storytelling ability, <laughs> but 
it isn't necessarily that much more vibrant in the player's imagination mm-hmm. than one that's just completely slapdash improvised all the way through yeah. that they have some more ownership of. Whereas in a video game, you mm-hmm. if you make it more open and free, then it there's less to imagine because you're seeing such drab generics. Yeah. Where, so yeah. it's kind of yeah. it's the 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 prescription is different. Like you want to be more specific in a video game, but you that is seems like poison in, a, in a, as a as a game master. Yeah. But like I GMs can't help it, right? They want to have things they want to do, right? Yeah, one analogy that I like to make between like what the DM is doing versus what a video game is doing is like I like to think about a DM being like the most sophisticated AI that you could conjure mm. because it writes the storylines as you go. It is constantly able to change direction based off of player inputs. And Stephen, what you were saying is like you have to anticipate or you have to create what the player inputs are, and then you have to be able to have the system react to those in a prescriptive way. And if you want them to be able to enter a cave, now you have to design like a cave and figure out how you're going to represent right. that visually right. and mm-hmm. everything else. So like I think about like, man, when are we going to get to the point where like we can have Westworld as like a, a video game where it's just like <laughs> every single NPC is doing their own scripted storyline. And then whatever you're doing, you'll like encounter them. And so like, if you ignore the bandits, like now they're like, this horrifying like warlord like clan that's coming to like take everything over mm-hmm. and like in a in an RPG you can do that but in a video game you're constrained mostly by your budget and how right. much writing you're going to inflict on your writers yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a good description one one thing that that got me thinking about and it was one of the questions that Ellen had given ahead of time like how you can maybe ideas for games and you know uh, uh, as somebody who plays a lot of video games but much like i don't have professional tabletop role-playing writing experience i have no professional video game design experience so you can take this with a bit of salt but i would say um i've seen things that as a dungeon as a game master i go oh neat and in a video game context and it's not what you maybe would expect at first blush something like breath of the wild mm-hmm. uh to use a touchtone triple a big example of this because those are fairly rare um uh there you have a rule set you have a premise and they plop you in the the designers of breath of the wild legend of zelda breath of the wild are immensely unconcerned recklessly so that you as the player will just miss 80 percent of the game yeah they don't care they give you all the tools and they do very deliberate things that a lot of open world and other kind of freeform sandbox games do things like no matter where you look, you have some point object of interest on the horizon that's usually higher and then you'll go to it. All this kind of game design kind of stuff that we don't need to go into. But um, that kind of signposting and direction is a lot what when I'm doing my more uh, and Kat expanded on what she's exploring more now, uh, that naturalistic or whatever game design where I'm going to create this world premise problems and then have those things as a naturally are just moving. The game isn't really about you. Yeah. And even like breath of the wild where you're explicitly the chosen one who's going to save Hyrule. You're not in any particular hurry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of do whatever the hell you want without consequences with a big open-ended toolbox. Everything's physics, physics and whatever. Right. So it is constrained. The developers had all those limitations that video game developers have that game masters don't, but they took those constraints and did something interesting with them. I mean, Cat can say too, like uh, as a game master, you know, you can only improvise so far 
I can only, I can't, pr- if you want a really good villain monologue, you got to write that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least do a ton of stuff in the shower where you're just like doing voices and saying menacing shit to yourself, you know, but really you got to write that ahead of time. And that kind of bespoke stuff, that's just as much of a restriction as any, any kind of game de- designer. Um, I-, I would say it's just that I don't have dev time. I can just write it. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, so, Stephen, in the past, we have talked about role-playing games, board games, tabletop on the show before. We have, yeah. Now, if a listener is like, hey, I don't remember that, uh, what, what, how can we help them? Well, we prove them wrong, obviously, by telling them to go to our website. <laughs> We've had, yeah, we, we, um, we, we'll, we'll link to some of these past episodes in, in the show notes here. But uh, um, Katrina, in the, the episode, brought up that like some of the origins of Dungeons & Dragons can be traced back to Minnesota. Um, and we actually interviewed... Um, a, 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 a local legend. <laughs> Martha's dad um, was on the show before. Um, right. And yeah, he had stories from the very first, you know, adventuring group, yeah. Gary Gygax and that group uh, that he was a part of. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. And he talked about designing board games, yeah. which, you know, in that, in those, in that, uh, in that era, it was really, really interesting conversation. Yeah, totally. And we, we've also talked about it from different angles too. Um, like we talked with Peter Yang, who was helping us try to publish um, uh, Glom, and uh, we talked to him about board game publishing. Um, and then we've also just talked about it from just player perspective. Um, like one of our earliest episodes, I think it was episode 10, uh, Martha was like, she doesn't like board games, which we know is not true, but she said it on the show for some reason. So <laughs> it's the family legacy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's like a whole lot of different episodes where we talk about board games and things. Um, we've got a whole history of it. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's the thing. For a show that's been on as long as ours has, there's you know lots of stuff to go, and we encourage you to do that at our website, yeah. NiceGames.club. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Katrina, you touched on it too with the like the, um, the fighting to the death concept, which is such a very easily mechanized activity. Yeah. That mm-hmm. it, in role playing games, there it's hard to move away from that because the system works and it's there. And then if you have a situation where you, you do sometimes need those rules, um, even in a even in a system where anything is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I find really interesting too is like historically, if you go to older Dungeons and Dragons editions, you have morale rules. You have rules for like 
if this monster like reaches this many hit points or if this many creatures have been slain, the rest are going to run away. And I don't know that that exists in fifth edition right now um, as written. Like I correct me if I'm wrong, listener out there, you know, <laughs> send us a, a tweet, whatever. Um, but morale is missing. And I think that's kind of like one of the systems that I would want to like cobble together, maybe tack on or, if I'm not having like a formalized system, at least I'm keeping track like in my mind as something, you know, one of the like criteria that I'm checking for. The That's a, an example I really like because um, the, the role-playing game that I have the most experience with currently is Star Trek Adventures, which it, it, uh, true to its, its, uh, its uh, source material, it does not want you to kill everybody. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. and, 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 but every mission, at least the ones that are, are created for, uh, that are not, you know, um, uh, they're all designed very storybook style. So every encounter has a, sp- a specific ending. And a lot of it is like once you've wounded one Cardassian, the rest will get will tell you where to go next or whatever. Like it's very, but that's all very prescribed. It doesn't. It, I heard it once re- you wound one Cardassian. So I'm <laughs> like- <laughs> May also be true. But yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a different role playing system. <laughs> Someone needs to make that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's it. I was thinking like, oh, it has rules like that. But like, no, it actually doesn't. It actually mm-hmm. is just confined to those modules on how to handle situations like that. Yeah. Mm. Um, it doesn't That's actually have saying. more yeah. specific. It just encourages, and if you when you write your own missions, it encourages you to also end encounters that way with, with a threshold, of, you know, to, rather than just everybody down on the ground. But it, it actually doesn't have any more detailed rules than, like a, than say, a Dungeons and Dragons game does. It just advises the game master differently. So to adapt the parlance that we introduced earlier yeah. in the episode, it's got some light systems around it, but not some crunchy ones. Right. Did I get it right? It, yeah, is that correct? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, that makes me think of another thing, too, related to all this. Is, oh, I won't go too long here on that, but um, constraints have a kind of a reverse relationship in these games I find sometimes. So if, for example, D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, has rules for wrestling, you can wrestle a creature. There are rules for that. That's prescribed. And because that rule exists, and I've DM for new people and introducing people to role-playing games and the concept themselves, light systems, I find, are very hard to teach to people who do not have any role-playing background. Oh, okay. D&D says you can wrestle, which then makes them think, oh man, can I grab ropes on the walls? Can I interact with these torches? Can I, if I can wrestle, can I knock this vanity over in front of the door to bar the door? Mm. Because I can wrestle and they may have not gotten to the athletic skill check section of the book or whatever. They just had an idea of, I want to grab this goblin and 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 sh- you know shake them down for lunch money or whatever it is they're doing. Um, well, hopefully more pro social than that. But those constraints <laughs> drive new ideas. Like, oh well, they say I can't cast. I can't use a. I can't use this minor illusion to make noise and visual. Hmm. But I can do any visual. You know. So those things put ideas into people's heads that they wouldn't have otherwise had if you just said you could do anything. That's not helpful because. Humans don't do anything. We do one thing at a time, yeah. usually. Yeah, you that, know. I, I really like that because, like, there's that spell in D and D. I've played D and D like two times. There's a spell in D and D that I love because it's fun to say too. Press the digitation. 
you just do like random yeah. magic tricks or whatever. That's like my favorite spell because yeah. I feel like you can be so creative with it. Because um, yeah. you can kind of just do anything. It just has to be really small. <laughs> and I try to use that to like win combat encounters and stuff. It's mm-hmm. pretty great. I like flavoring food with it. Yeah. Like <laughs> this tastes like chicken. That tastes like chicken. This tastes like chicken. And that tastes like chicken. <laughs> yeah. I'm always, I'm always like, what tricks do I have in my bag? Even though I have a really powerful sword and that monster has four hit points. Yeah. How can I clever my way out of this? Encounter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of player I am. Mm-hmm, and same here. Dungeon masters don't love that all the time. <laughs> that really like kind of gets back to um, one of the things that like John was talking about. And one of the things I touched on as well, where it's like thinking about what your characters are about. And like what they want to do and what they're good at doing. And so like don't design a story where the rogue never gets to like deal with traps if they built their entire character around dealing with traps. Right. And if you if you have something in their backstory, if they have an NPC that they've named or like a family or something like I love John's like shoebox idea of like, you know, these are all the characters and maybe I'll like bring one up this session or things like that. So it's like building upon the the story elements that you already have and like that's honestly how you do advanced techniques like foreshadowing um is going to be like all about like repetition and then having like a payoff of things that you've seeded in before and like trying to to telegraph basically the the upcoming things um once players figure them out if players figure them out a lot of them have like that really satisfying oh, that's what that key is for. That's what that riddle means. Or like, mm-hmm. this is how we're supposed to do this thing. Um, and yeah, like repetition is half of it, I think. It's also how you can do bad things to players yeah. in game, like their characters, and they're down for it. Mm. Like if you can, if you get them invested by using bits from their own character and their backstory, you give them, I, I think there's, I think this is an actual term, so I'm not coining it, but I can't remember who it is. A moments of mastery. You give them a thing where they, they nail it. They're useful. And then in you, in you foreshadow, and, and this is true of video games too, by the way, I, mm-hmm. I feel like it's really un, it, it feels really lame when it's like, all right, go fight the big monster and he and i have no relation to it i don't know yeah. why i'm doing this yeah. and it just shows yeah. up and i beat it and the a big number flies on the screen and victory and i'm like i don't give a dang about any of this <laughs> um but for like i mean i've done horrible cosmic horror level nonsense to like player characters but they knew on they didn't know what was going to happen to them mm-hmm. but they knew it could because i foreshadowed it now i've i've heard i've had talked to so many uh, game masters and read so many horror stories on Reddit and other forums of uh, of how games fly off the handle and they can't ever raise the stakes and they can't ever make anything dangerous or, mm. or stressful because people will think that oh well the DM's just gotching me he just got he's out after my character um, uh, you can get players to go damn straight my dwarf just got maimed and I lost an eye. That's metal as hell, and I'm here for it, even though it's got penalties and it's bad because I they did something it, we we earned it. You know? Yeah, as it a, comes down to like the the agency and the level of choice that you give them. Like, yeah, of course, if like you have you know your like I'm gonna say like your magic law enforcement, you know your Templars like barge in and like want to do something and like arrest all the PCs. If they've never done anything to like earn that response from the world yeah they're gonna feel like pretty gotcha or like 
you know, the classic start of you wake up in a prison yeah. and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> but why? And, and so, but it's totally different if the PCs continually commit crimes. And every time they commit crimes, you tell them like, you're leaving evidence behind or there were witnesses or like you stole from someone who like doesn't like that or, or like you killed these guards. You, <laughs> you killed them in cold blood. Yeah. And then when you have the repercussions of their own actions, even though it's like a negative thing falling down on their heads, they caused it. You've warned them. And like they they should have buy in by that time because it's like John has a really great story about this that he was telling me about like pretty much exactly this scenario. Um, and it, players will get a kick out of it because they brought it down on their own heads, which was fun, I guess. <laughs> Um, that's actually a good segue because one of the things I wanted to talk about during our time together today were some stories. Um, so uh, this doesn't have to be that specific story that Katrina, you were just referencing, but I do want to hear about from each of you a time where a session just went like super well, where it all lined up. Um, maybe give us a quick summary of what happened and then also talk about like, what it felt like for you and what learning about you know design and being a dungeon master you were able to carry forward from that experience. I can think about it. Like, honestly, I had this question. I know you gave it to me ahead of time. <laughs> I understood the assignment, but like <laughs> my memory is not what it used to be. I hear you. <laughs> I know that I've had a great time. So I think honestly, it really does come down to like the, the agency and players. Like one thing that I go back to, I run a lot of convention games. So like I'm sitting down at a table with strangers. Yeah. We're going to play a game together. And usually this is because I don't know anyone in my personal friend group who wants to play super random indie game about being a, an elf adventuring rock band or something like that. You know what I mean? Right. And so, um, but the thing that I like to do when I run con games is I like to give them chances to customize or even build their characters right as they sit down at the table. And that immediately like helps them like step into the shoes of the character that they're role playing as and like feel bought into like the kind of play that they get to do, like whether they're going to be like a very social character or a very like tricksy character or a very like, I'm going to carry a flamethrower and burn down everything alive. Um, and so the, the magic happens in my mind when the player gets to explore the concept and explore the mechanics that they are most interested in and when the GM can cater to that. And so like, this is why uh, if anyone hasn't read it or is interested in learning more, Robin's laws of good game mastering, I think is what it is. It talks about the idea of player types and the, the premise is like, you have players that really enjoy combat and like mastery and you have players that really enjoy like the thrill of what happens next. And so if you can understand what players want and then give that to them like that's how you you get the magic to happen and so the the trickiest part of role-playing games in my opinion is finding a group that is all on board for the same kind of stuff or like that has very similar tastes um and also like if you are gaming in like a public gaming space or like at a convention telegraphing to your potential players what kind of experience they would be in for so that they're already like on board um, with the with the scenario. Um, so you can get like really great emotional payoff if people really want to tell stories about like 
their character's emotional growth and like reconciling with like old enemies and things like that or like having the tactical payoff of like man i just expended my last spell slot and like we finally like slew the dragon at this last moment and um you know choosing which system you're going to play has a lot to do with that and if you're if you're new to role playing games if you're like just you know starting to get into the hobby i will actually shout out unpossiblelabs.com um, they have an amazing list of different role-playing games based off of what genre they are and what kind of like how rules complicated they are. And so like if you've played Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons and you want to see what else is out there or if you're new to tabletop games and you just want to get a sense of it, this list is fabulous. I really recommend. And that'll be, you know, finding the right group goes such a long way and then finding a DM that knows how to like push the buttons of that group in a way that is fun. Yeah, that's good. I think like John must be like an expert at that because he has you guys keeping coming back after six years. <laughs> a character yeah, did lose an um, eye for sure. <laughs> that did happen. Um, yeah. And everything, you know, I, I can, I can kind of uh, provide a little bit here, but as also a segue, cause I think, um, my style is DM and that's developed over the years, that very improvisational collaborative. It asks a lot of my players, I ease them in, you know, like if it's a newer group or a group that I've known for a long time, um, cause I have DM some one shots and I'm much worse at it. I do find that like, this is a real thing. Like I haven't, I haven't figured out some secret sauce. I know I, I talk a big game here, but, um, because my players who know me and have played it, think they love it because six years of it you know and we've had some real high highs you know and you know sessions. kind of what they like and like mm-hmm. you know their personalities right like you've gotten to learn over time yep Ex- exactly yeah and that different kinds of players though but is, is an interesting thing you mentioned that because those exist and my group the challenge that we've had and actually a big source of a lot of the worst sessions big bombs big stinkers everybody is upset and not in a fun way um be, come from the fact that this group of people we're the the group is together because they're all friends or they know each other from other contexts and they're playing together they are different role-playing game players and as mm-hmm. their journey and as they've matured as players people who play games want different things we've got player we've got players that are very mechanically driven like if there's a combat situation Oh boy, they've got that rule book. They want that. They want it crunchy, but they also paradoxically want it really fast. And they have a very, very hard to please that, that particular, you know, kind of uh, subset of my play group. Um, because if it's not fast and tight and interesting, kind of lose them. Um, but if there isn't enough combat, then they don't feel like they have any investment in the rest of their character sheet. Other people in the group, they're kind of just down to clown. Whatever is up, they're golden for it. And that, that's great. But the problem there is because I, as a DM, am not hardly ever thinking about them because it's not a problem. I don't have to ever consider it. They might go 10 sessions and I'm like, oh, wait, I haven't circled back to this, per, you know, our, our hamster paladin's plot arc in two months. <laughs> there was a hamster paladin also. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in two months, right? You know, so then you can have these kind of. You know, some will say that these are good problems to have. You have a regular play group, da 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 da. Um, but the bad sessions are when 
you know, if I've failed to adequately get every player invested in the action on the table, the way that our the collaborative situation works with the collaborative storytelling, as soon as someone falls off Mr. Keeney's wild ride, oh, they can't catch up to the train. It's so hard. And you can't can see it right now, but I'm nodding like vigorously in agreement. <laughs> um, and you can't get them back on the train because maybe that train, the destination that everybody seemed to be going for is a series of grueling death march combat encounters with a ticking clock plot, a ticking clock plot device. No rests. No, you know, it's like four sessions back to back of like, I want these people. They're being chased out of a city that's infested with demons. And Everybody but one person is super down, but it's like five sessions mm. and the one person that was not in for it have now had a month of like, what the hell guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And if I were to do a course correct from a DM chair, I'm pissing off or, or ru- not only pissing off, that's dramatic, but I am ruining and arbitrarily in a way and denying agency I've given so much agency away. Like yeah. they have so much freedom and power and I don't railroad them. That's like the social compact at the table. The problem with that is sometimes I really need to claw that back as a game master. Um, and, in, and if you let it go too long, uh, the train, they, they've thrown me off the train. The train's just going, mm. you know, but uh, so those trains. would be the big stinkers <laughs> is when someone, cause it'll come to a head. What will happen is it'll come to a head. And then it'll be a mess. And then yeah, I that that reminds me of a a session, a a convention game that I played in recently, where we all sat down to play um, this one game, and then one player sits down and asks, "Oh, we're here to play insert other game here, right? Like that's what this is." And we're all looking, and we're like, "Oh no!" Like they misread the session title, and it's like. And from that on, then on, because like not only that, but that had like upset the DM, um, like understandably so. Like you have someone sign up for your game and they don't know what it is. And then like they get something like kind of major wrong about it or they like th- then they complain that they didn't know where they could find the information. It's like, but it was right there. Yeah. Um, and so now it's like we're, we're dealing with completely different expectations and like it's not what it they th- are thinking that it's something that it isn't what it says on the tin. Um, and the other thing, um, and, and this mostly goes for groups where you're not playing with like all of your friends, but like the DM will make or break the scenario. You can have the same pre-written module. And if you have a DM that is fun, excited to be here, energetic, polite, respectful, um, and inclusive of everyone at the table, that is going to be such a profoundly different experience than the GM who is visibly showing their disdain for another player at the table. Like just, just leave, like you can spend your time better elsewhere. Um, But it's, it's similar where it's, you know, the, the pick as a DM, if you're the one who's creating the content or if you're the one who is, um, curating what content, what published content you're going to use. Like if you're going to re- use a pre-written adventure, um, you have to really parse and like use that sense that you develop for your group. Like John was saying, like getting to know your players in order to tweak those scenarios, tweak those adventures in order to appeal to everyone. So you're not like pulling along someone who just really is not there for that kind of fun. 
for multiple weeks over and over. So yeah, it's more than video games, but also similarly to video games, telegraphing what this game is about and what kind of fun you're going to have if you participate is a huge part. And I think that like, I think of how people respond to media or when they review media, like movies, video games, um, board games, the thing that will, I think, tank the reviews faster than anything else is when they expected A and they were delivered B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have to be careful of that, I think. That brings a question to me because like I, I you, you were talking about how like if you're going through a session over and over and like there's a there's a player that is, you know, not feeling the session. Um, how how do you get do you? Do you just ask how how did this session go? Like, how do you get feedback about like each diff- individual session? You just ask. Yeah. Okay. It's <laughs> like being in a relationship where you have to use your words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> but but in fairness, Stephen, like it can be really intimidating. Like mm-hmm. a lot of players feel super uncomfortable, like telling their DM what they want or what they like would really like to see or like what needs to change Yeah. because like the DM has like such a position of power. And like, if the player, you know, depending on what they're asking, they might be asked to like leave the group, you know? Um, But on the other hand, I I've also played with players that like, even if you ask them, Hey, how are you feeling about the session? Like, was it fun for you? Was there anything not fun? And like DMS, I really encourage you to like ask your players, like what they thought and like, get feedback on a regular basis and make that a norm at your table for them to give like, you know, constructive feedback. Um, But when you have a player that won't um, elucidate their needs and like, isn't comfortable talking to the DM, but then it comes back to the DM, like through the grapevine instead, that's just like, it's the same as with any friendship. Like it's not working now. Like the communication channel isn't clear. Right. So that, that relationship is even more, like that, that I guess that communication is even more important than like a, a video game developer player relationship. Cause I mean, we, we also, you know, have to ask for feedback. That's like nice games clubs mantras, get feedback. <laughs> um, um, and it's a little bit, but I, I can, I can kind of hear some similarities with, with what you're talking about. Like when you're asking as a developer, when you ask the player how they feel about the game, they'll oftentimes approach you as though the developer is a, a, you know, in a position of power because they, you know, determine the direction that the game is going in but because uh the the tabletop rpg goes you know for multiple sessions or can go for multiple sessions that is an ongoing relationship that you have to cultivate yeah players don't always realize that they actually have the power Mm. to influence or because i think people are used to uh, game and gamer relationships yeah. And so it's harder for them to realize they can have a say. And also it's kind of a bummer to be like the one person not having fun because you don't want to make a stink. Right. You yeah. know, I, I can imagine. I, I think one thing, and this is a beautiful segue into one of the questions of like advice for maybe tabletop role-playing uh, game masters or would-be game masters or things like that. Um all this can sound, I think, if I'm imagining an, a person who just wants to dip their toes into game mastering or dungeon mastering, uh, you know, TM, you know, whatever, um, <laughs> can sound very, very intimidating, all of this, right? This can sound like a lot. 
Um, and it already sounds like a lot when you read the Dungeon Master's Guide for D&D. It already sounds like a lot. The, I think the first thing, and it took me so long to learn this from when I was 12 years old with questionably obtained third edition D&D rule books um, strapped to my bike. It took me very long to learn this lesson as a game master, DM, a dungeon master. You need to, as a dungeon master, before you even gather a group, before you even do anything, before you write a single bullet point or come up with a single MacGuffin, why do you want to game master this system? Mm. What yep. are you going to be happy with at the end of every session? If you're, if the answer to that question, and there isn't an incorrect answer, but you do need to understand it um, because that is going to save you so much misery. Um, because if you, and I'll give a very specific example. My first adventure I ever wrote, I was 13 and I wrote it. See, I'm using that word very carefully. Mm. I wrote it <laughs> like a, like a pulp fiction short story. <laughs> there were lizard men hiding in a pond in a cave. And I had a very elaborate sequence of things that were going to happen that all these other characters that the players were going to play and just play out their role, like a goosebumps adventure or something. And my payoff, why I wanted game masters, I wanted to essentially press my friends into an impromptu fantasy play where we screenplay, where they bonked some lizard. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. It was a disaster. Oh, a disaster. Um, they had so much fun and I was miserable the whole time. Men <laughs> at all. They didn't fight a single darn lizard man. Oh, they poked around on the cliffs until they found like a rock's nest or something. And then they stole eggs because I had to improvise something because I was there <laughs> all I had to I had to stand in front of these guys in the basement because I didn't have a ride home until that evening. So I had to just make stuff up. Mm-hmm. I grew up out in the country. Um, but anyway, so it's so important to answer. So what I wanted the 13 year old me, I wanted to tell stories. And there are systems and players who, are, who want that to happen. Mm-hmm. They want to go through like an investigation or something that's going to have this progression that is going to happen. Other, uh, but other DMs, like what I've settled on is I want my players to have fun. Open-ended. If everyone at the table had a good time, I had a good time. And all this crap I do, all this Wizard of Oz behind the curtain stuff, that's just to get everybody's faces lit up because I find that that's the thing that makes me most happy is seeing everyone engaged in, you know, the, I'm making faces for the folks who aren't going to see this, but like, you know, faces John is of a horror. very gesticulate person. Yes. Or, yeah, faces of horror or triumph. And I'll, if, if nothing I wanted to have happen or thought was going to happen, happened, but everybody left that session being like, dude, you remember that time we did the thing? That's why I do it. So answer that question for yourself and you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble. Mm. 1000% this. I just want to like, you know, highlight underscore, put exclamation points and stars around that advice because um, that honestly was what led me to experiment with so many different systems Mm. as a dungeon master where, um, you know, 3.5 and and fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons were um, like kind of where I cut my teeth um, along with like, Dark Heresy, which is a, a Warhammer, um, grim, dark, sci-fi, crazy town. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, like trying different systems, 
seeing what it felt like to run them and then seeing like how stressful that was or how much fun that was and like what parts I enjoyed. And for me, honestly, I enjoyed like prepping like at least 50% as much as I enjoy like running the table. <laughs> um, but that also kind of led me to try like some of this, some of these like indie games that are powered by the apocalypse um, and other like story games that are more like collaborative and like there really is no GM. The game is just running itself with input from the players. Um, by having a variety of experiences, I was able to figure out what systems I enjoyed running the most. Um, and I think a, a lot of people kind of, um, I noticed that a lot of people will restrict themselves to just one. And, and part of that is because it can be difficult to learn multiple um, systems. Like not everyone like enjoys reading rule books for fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and to that, I would say there are like starter set scenarios and modules. Um, I've worked on a couple. They're aimed at, at giving you like a taste and they're also like happily, a lot of them are lower price or if they're like a quick start or a free RPG day PDF, they're free. And so you can get a taste of the system, try running the scenario that, you know, they, they, that the publishers think is a good introduction to the system. And then you can tell, ask yourself and your group, did we have fun? Would we like to try this again? Or do we want to try something different? And um, I'm going to shout out like kind of the North as a local convention here in the Twin Cities where you can sit down and play a whole bunch of different systems that you might not be able to with your home group or at your local game store. One of the things that clicked for me in hearing both of you talk about designing scenarios and designing systems was how, at least through the lens of like video game development, and if we're coming at the, the tabletop RPG space with the history of doing video games, the people and the relationships between the people become part of the game system. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that clicked for me. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you think about all the different tools that you might use to put together a video game. You know, you're using like, you're creating art assets, you're creating music, you're creating the game system itself, the physics engine, you're creating extra things that Unity doesn't have built in. So you're building your own, yep. <laughs> you're building your own thing. And all those things have to work together and speak to each other in ways that facilitate your overall workflow so that the game can take shape. And the same thing's happening um, in a tabletop RPG with the players and with a game master or with just the players if there's no mm -hmm. game master. Um, but the, the, like the API between the different parts of your system is the relationships between the people, not between the characters, because that's part of the game, mm -hmm. but like the, the relationships between the people and the way that you are cultivating and nurturing those relationships is going to help the game system, you know, rise help the game take shape overall yeah. i hadn't really thought about that before but um yeah you can kind of boil it all down to inputs and outputs regardless yeah yeah right like just it, you can you can have improvisational systems in video games and you could be constrained in tabletop by tabletop rules mm -hmm. um they're obviously different mm -hmm. but they have a lot to teach each other right yeah yeah and i i i, I think it's so interesting how important it is in both video games and tabletop RPGs how important it is to understand player motivation. Like, yeah. what, not just you as the dungeon master wants to do, but what you as uh, it, what each individual player wants to do. I guess it's up to the to to the GM to figure out what each player 
wants to get out of it, or you could just ask them, I guess, too. But like, <laughs> feedback is important. Yeah. But um, yeah, like like understanding that and using that to shape the game. It's 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 like that kind of stuff is the exact same in both mediums. It's just the mediums are different, so you got to do it in different ways, approach it mm-hmm. in different ways. Yeah, you use that same knowledge, you use that same information. Yeah, there are the similar structures around the information that's being conveyed. The patterns might look similar. Yeah, it's just like the the shape or the exact nature of that data that's being transmitted. It looks different. Yes. Yeah. I gosh, we have to have you on again because I feel like we had so much more that we could have surfaced and could have talked about. Um, but for tonight, before we wrap up, uh, for our listeners who want to track you down, potentially to ask you questions on Twitter or we offer corrections, uh, where can where can <laughs> folks find you online? Um, so you can find me. I'm at Lindevi on Twitter. Um, my professional portfolio is KatrinaOstrander.com, um, and so there's a contact form, and you can also just at me. Hopefully in a friendly way. (laughs) (laughs) Please, it's Nice Games Club. Yes. And if anybody wants to get a hold of me, they kind of (laughs) can't. You must solve these riddles three. (laughs) I'm not sharing my Dungeon Master, you guys. I'm sorry. No. (laughs) I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to put that evil on you guys. (laughs) Okay, so one last thing. Katrina, you mentioned. You mentioned as we were starting up today that you just published a book. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more quickly. Yeah. Um, so my debut novella is out. Um, it is set in a game world. It's set in The Legend of the Five Rings, and it's part of an omnibus collection published by Aconite Books. The title is The Great Clans of Rokugan, Volume 1. Should be available at all of your friendly local game stores, as well as anywhere where books are sold. It's ebook, Barnes & Noble, um, you know, wherever you want to go. Um, so that's very exciting. And then one thing that I wanted to shout out as well, um, based off of what we were talking about, um, one of the games that I recently worked on is called Descent Legends of the Dark. And I think that that would be super fun for folks to check out because it is a very much a role-playing game, but the game master is handled by an app. Oh. And so... Oh. Yeah, yeah. Eve, there was another game that, I played. Like, seeing like how that interacts and like seeing, um, you know, I think astute listeners, people that are analyzing, can also think about like why did the designers choose this or like what are the different like systems that this uh, enables to play and like how does this differ than role playing games and how is this inspired by role playing games? But like, A, I think it's a great game and you should check it out. B, I think that there's a lot you can learn from it, from like breaking it down and thinking about it. And I worked on it. I think it's great. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's 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 really cool. For sure. And I need to get my husband a Christmas present. So that might be a (laughs) that might be showing up in our house pretty soon. (laughs) That's our show. Check out our website, nicegames.club, for show notes and links to resources on today's topics, as well as some of the products that Katrina just mentioned. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and on our programming in general. You can go to nicegames.club slash feedback and tell us what you think. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at NiceGamesClub, where Dale tweets about game dev resources and long overdue changes. Changes to what? Go look on Twitter. You'll find out. Or you can email us through contact at nicegames.club. Want to support the show? 
Yay. Thank you. There are so many ways. Give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about your favorite episodes. Join us on Discord by visiting nicegames.club slash Discord. And we are also on Patreon. As a patron of the show, you'll enjoy bonus content, extra jokes, and more. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. So, until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. How you go about? What's up? Something happened. Oh, I just wanted to. I just wanted to check our time. Time check. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, we're going a little over. We're well, I just want to be respectful. We can talk forever. We just did a recording that was an hour and forty minutes, so we can keep talking. But I want to be respectful of both of your time <laughs> yeah. because it's a school night. As the, yeah. All right, Stephen, take two. Okay. <laughs> um. That that that. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.